Okay, this morning we continue in 1 Peter. Last week we covered the first verse, and this week we will cover the second and maybe get a little further. There is much, much to talk about in these first two verses. As I said last week, it's just dripping with theology. You, if you don't spend a lot of time on these first couple of verses, there is no way that you're going to do them justice. So I will do my best today to bring you accurate teaching from the second verse of First Peter. Now last week, of course, we covered the first verse, um, which was uh, Peter's defense of his or given his authority as an apostle and um, and establishing his authorship. And the, fun, the reason for the, this letter to the dispersion was that the Christians, to show Christians how to behave in the midst of a hostile, persecuting world. They faced persecution. <clears throat> Peter has some news for them. It's going to get worse. And so it's probably the same with the Church of Jesus Christ now. We have persecution in a large part of the church of Jesus Christ in this world today uh, in different stages of persecution. We have not suffered too much here, at least compared to some of the people over in the Near East and Far East. So Peter's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He, He was appointed by Christ as an apostle. He was with him from the very beginning of his ministry to the very end and even in his post-resurrection 40 days. So he was, he has the authority over the, he has uh, delegated authority from Christ over the church. And the big one big passage we looked at last week was Matthew 16, 13 through 19 where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ says, I am going to build my church upon that confession that he was, uh, Peter's confession that he was the Christ. And he was going to give Peter the keys to the kingdom. And of course, Peter preached the first sermon of the New New Covenant. uh, And he also took the word to the Gentiles, as we saw in Acts chapter 10, where he goes to Cornelius' house and preaches a sermon there to the Gentiles. So we have the prominence of Peter. He was an apostle, uh, but he was, there's hard to imagine anybody could have been any closer to Jesus than Peter was. He was one of the three apostles in Jesus' inner circle, he, James, and John, and um, saw that this letter was most likely written by Peter from Rome, and uh, that it was written around 63 or 64 A.D. Now, we also covered the fact um, that in the Old Covenant, according to First Peter one ten. Jesus prophesied 
of his works that he was going to do during this ministry. He prophesied of his works that he was going to do. First um, Peter 1, 10 through 12 shows that. And then, of course, he performed the works. He did everything necessary for the salvation of the elect while he was on earth. And now, through his appointed apostles, Jesus interprets his own work. He prophesied it in the Old Covenant. He performed it in the Gospels. And he interprets his work now that he has ascended into heaven and has sent his spirit into the church and his apostles interpret his work for him. So that brings us to the end of verse 1. Any questions, comments on verse 1? Okay, if not, we will go to verse 2 now. I will read these. I'm reading from the English Standard. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, first thing to note is, this is in your notes, Peter calls them elect in the first verse. If you're going by the word order of the Greek, I know that elect or chosen might be at the beginning of the second verse in some translations. But like I said, the exact word order is in the Greek. In that verse is that Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, elect um, elect exiles of the dispersion. So they were called elect in the first verse, and then here in the second verse, he states that it is an accor- an according that is according to the foreknowledge of God. According to the foreknowledge of God, they are elect according to His foreknowledge, which this, in my opinion, anyway, is solid biblical proof of the doctrines of predestination and election. God chose them. They did not choose him. If somebody says they choose Jesus and they're sincere, it's only because Jesus has first chosen them. And by his spirit has given them a new heart to where they can come to Christ. So... God does the choosing. All right, let's have Ephesians 1, 4 read for us. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He chose us in him. Two things to note. God does the choosing, and the choosing is in Christ. There's no blessing outside of Christ. We have to be chosen in Christ before we can receive any kind of blessing. All right, going over to Ephesians 2, 1, Dana. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's no way you could choose God. There's, there's no way a dead person 
could ever choose anything. Now, this should really humble us, and this is why the, only a Calvinist can be humble, because there was nothing good in any of us. God doesn't look down the, and uh, God does not look into the future and see that any of us are going to believe or do anything good. No, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Nothing good in us. Now, um, we, um, this word for foreknowledge, anybody know what that transliterates into in the English? Prognosis. Yeah, prognosis. Yes. Uh, so that's where our word prognosis comes from. It is God knowing in advance. <coughs> and I'm going to go into that just a little bit more in just a minute. Um, also, let's now have Romans 9, 10 through 13 read for us. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, but the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So the end product is God loves Jacob, but Esau he hated. Well, that's also the beginning of it too, in this electing love. Here we have twins. Conceived at the same time by the same mother and daddy. Um, in the womb of the mother, they haven't done anything good or evil. They haven't had a chance to do anything good or evil. So there is nothing to separate them. And God says, but Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And it was all God's purpose of election. Now, Paul goes on to anticipate a question um, later on. He, said, he says, um, is God unjust in doing this? And in effect, he says, just shut up. Just shut up. There is no injustice with God. Both of them deserve his wrath, his eternal wrath, because they were dead sinners. So he would not he would still be perfectly just if he hated both of them. But according to his mercy, he loved Jacob and appointed Jacob to everlasting life, not because of anything in Jacob, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand. That really rubs the flesh the wrong way, doesn't it? It does not depend on anything in us. It is all according to God's predestinating and electing love. Yeah, Jason. I've got the ESV here, which is the version you read, right? Right. And I know most, I don't usually use ESV, so I'm familiar mostly with the other um, translations putting the elect down next to um, the verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge. Um, to me, it sounds like it changes the meaning of 
ESV is changing the meaning, which is the more appropriate? The ESV has the exact word order. The exact word order? That's the exact word order of the Greek. Yeah, that's why. Because well, it seems like it's, when you put the elect exiles, it seems like the election is chosen is that they're exiles. If you move it down to where verse 2, where it says elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it makes it sound more like like what you're talking yeah, about, you don't salvation. Have, yeah. yeah, you don't have the separation of those pounds in there. But you're right, it does. It does sound like it weakens it, but that's that's the order in the Greek. Yeah. Yeah, the NASB puts it at the end of verse 1. Yeah. And I don't think it makes any difference myself. Yeah. You, it's just a, a subordinate clause. <clears throat> you just leave out the subordinate clause in there of the ESV and it reads elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So in that case it's a matter of grammar, it should have a comma after elect and then and exiles being a yeah. yeah, so I can see if they did that it would make more sense. Yeah. So you can't boot commas around now. Yeah, right. I'm just kidding. Um the commas not inspired, so no. Nah. But according to the Greek text, there's commas after each of the locations. But the exact order is, and I've got the Greek right here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, elect exiles to the dispersion. And then they list those four towns. And then in verse 2, it picks up and says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But I, I suspected the same thing when I read the ESV. Oh, they're, they're trying to weaken the uh, doctrine of election, but no, they're not. They're just following the Greek word over there. So is that something that the King James people would jump on? <clears throat> I don't know. How does it read in the King James, verse 1 and 2? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And verse 2, elect according to the form. Yeah, they've got, they, they actually are guilty from taking elect and putting it in the wrong place. Just like the, well, the New American Standard Bible does it too. Mm -hmm. Okay, good discussion. They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now this word foreknowledge doesn't mean what we usually think of foreknowledge as meaning. Let's have Amos 3, 2. Well, first of all, y'all remember what Genesis 12 says, does. It's God calling Abraham out of the earth of the Chaldeans, a bunch of idol worshipers. God sovereignly calls Abraham. That's election. There was nothing in Abraham. His Tina's family and from the beginning of the world were idol worshipers. And then God chose Abraham. Okay. Now Amos three two. From among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all your sins. Your translation most likely says for not or knowing. Oh, let me see. 
Okay, Amos 3, 2. Um, 3, 2 in the ESV says, You only have I known. And I believe that's how most translations. And she says, or her translation says, I have become intimate. And God has become intimate. It's just not knowing them. He's become intimate with them. And then in um, that same same idea is used in uh, when Adam knew Eve after the fall. It's the the word knew, the word know is there. Well, you don't know somebody and get them pregnant. You have to have a little more intimate relationship with them than to just know them. So knowing in the Bible uh, carries more than just cognitive awareness. It's intimacy. So God was intimate. We could translate this according to the intimacy of God the Father. All right, let's have John six thirty-seven through 40 read. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. All right. The Father has elected them and given them to Christ. In John 17, 2 and 3. <clears throat> Start back on one. Okay. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Okay. So the Father has his elect, he has given them to the Son, and the Son has authority over all flesh. And in Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Okay. So we see that Peter is not teaching anything new. The doctrine of election goes clearly and probably before God elected Abraham and God elected Jacob. And God elected all of the elect, and he has given them, the Father has given them to the Son. So this is nothing new. It's all over the Bible. It's not something that you have to strain to come up with. It is clearly taught in all the scriptures. Now, to your notes. Uh, He is elected according to foreknowledge this is not just knowing in advance what they would do as one commentator pointed out I can't remember who he is but that is post destination God seeing what you're going to do and then electing you he would be doing something after he received new knowledge and we know that it's impossible for God to learn he already knows everything he's known everything from eternity past 
So God cannot learn something new about a person and then elect them to everlasting life. The election has to come first. You want to say something? So in, so in our perspective, election happens in time, but in God's perspective, it doesn't because we've been elect since the foundation of the world. Yeah. And Abraham had been elect. We all, had, the elect have been elect before they existed. Yeah. There's never been a time they haven't right. been elected because since God doesn't was. really make decisions. Right. From eternity past, it was decreed. We can't really wrap our hands around that, but he doesn't, at some point in time, decide he's going to save people. That, that just won't happen. The, well, if you want to not hear him, it doesn't save you when you walk up the aisle. Yeah. yeah. God sees you walking up the aisle, and he says, yeah. yes, I think I'll save him. No, doesn't happen that way. Good for him. <laughs> So it's more than knowing in advance. That would be post-destination. Romans 8.29 says that he knew them. It says, for whom God foreknew, he also predestined. It doesn't say he knows their works. It says he knew them, not what they were going to do. And notice that only those that he foreknew are saved. We turn to Romans 8.29. For those whom, it's those, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. So we see the only people that are justified are those that God foreknew. So you can infer from that that the ones that God did not foreknew will never be justified. So he knows, he knows what everyone will do. Yes, he does. But he never learns anything new. So we're talking about knowing in a special way, according to the apostle. He was intimate with them. He loved them. And he loved them. And so he appointed them to everlasting life. But he did not love them because he foresaw that they were going to do something nice. I want to read something from Cornelius Van Til. Y'all ever heard of him? Uh, Cornelius Van Til, he was a great apologist, great theologian. Uh, He was a professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary. Taught there for more than 40 years. And boy, he has some good insights, too. I think that was Gary Crick's favorite. Yeah. He referred to Van Til all the time. I took a course in apologetics there at um, Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and I told them they needed to rename that course Van Til instead of apologetics, because we had we had to read him and read him and read him. Okay, now I thought this was a fantastic insight. 
even if we say that in the case of any one individual sinner, the question of salvation is in the least analysis dependent upon man. If anything is dependent upon man and salvation rather than upon God, that is, if we say that man can of himself accept or reject the gospel as he pleases, we have made the eternal God dependent upon man. If he has to wait and see what the sinner's going to do, he's dependent upon man. We have then, in effect, denied the incommunicable attributes of God. You know what an incommunicable attribute is? That's an attribute God does not share with man. It's unique to him, um, such as omniscience. No man has omniscience. Unless, of course, he went to Harvard, right? He thinks he does. But anyway, incommunicable attributes. If we refuse to mix the eternal and the temporal, now that's mixing God with man, not the creator and creature. If we mix the eternal and the temporal, or the creator and creature, if we mix them, if we refuse to mix them at any point in creation, and we don't mix the eternal with the temporal at creation, and at the point of the incarnation, Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, no mixture, no mixture of the creator and creature, we must also refuse to mix them at the point of salvation. That would be mixing the eternal with the temporal. That will be tearing down the distinction between the creator and the creature if we attribute anything in salvation to man, according to Cornelius Van Til. And I believe he's absolutely right. I believe that is well said. A fantastic insight. All right, moving on. These verses show the roles of the three persons of the Trinity. And these three persons of the Trinity, they're all one-third God, right? Trying to do your job. <laughs> I may not be up here next week, y'all. Okay. Now, the three persons of the Trinity are all 100% God. But God is one person, <clears throat> is one, one essence in three persons. And all three persons are fully God. Now God the Father foreknows and elects. We, we've been talking about that this whole lesson. Now God the Spirit sanctifies or sets them apart from the world. The Spirit makes a distinction between the world and the church. And God the Son who sprinkles them with His blood. Let me read this verse 2 again. says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, that's the third person of the Trinity, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, the second person of the Trinity. So God the Father foreknows and elects, God the Spirit sanctifies, and God the Son sprinkles with His blood, making them fit for service. Now, it's not that only God the Father foreknows and all that there. 
That's a Trinitarian work. But the primary uh, part of election goes to the, the Father. Sanctification is the Spirit. And this, the saving work to Jesus Christ. Now, we are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Now, the old covenant priests were sprinkled by the blood of a sacrifice, just like we are. God's people, those that are holy, have all been sprinkled. Every one of us have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Now, those that aren't sprinkled by the blood of Christ, those that are not God's elect, are usually immersed. We find the world immersed in water in Noah's day. We find Sodom and Gomorrah immersed in fire and brimstone in Abraham's day. We find the Egyptian army immersed with water in the day of Moses. And eternity future, we will find the wicked immersed in the lake of fire for all eternity. So you can draw what you want from that, but the Bible always shows that God's people are sprinkled and the wicked are immersed. I started out as a Baptist if I would have heard you say something like that. Uh, immersion. Yes. Yeah. Unbelievers. Yeah. In the, in the Bible, immersion is for unbelievers. And sprinkling is for God's holy people. So this sprinkling with blood is definitely connected with the ceremonial law. Yeah. Yeah, the and ceremonial so law is not going to with uh, Conversation with, with Donna here about what she read. Yeah. I have to read that article, maybe talk about yeah. it. Okay. Um, I got that here compared to Exodus 24. You remember in Exodus 24, Moses sacrificed the bull or goat. I can't remember exactly what it was. When they were cutting the covenant, <clears throat> God was cutting the covenant with Israel. And he sprinkled blood on all the people. So they were sprinkled by the blood of the sacrifice and set apart. Now in your notes, they are chosen, set apart, and sprinkled. And notice that this is for obedience. Boy, that would rub a lot of Christians the wrong way, wouldn't it? You mean we're under authority? We're supposed to obey? Well, I've got some news for you. If you don't obey, you're not a Christian, according to John. And then Paul pronounces a short benediction on them. Notice that grace comes first. Without grace, there will be no peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. After God shows you His grace, then you can have peace. But there is no wicked, says my God. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. All right, anything else? I've come to the end of the chapter. I think I've come to the end of verse 2. Yes. Anybody have anything to add? Okay, I'll ask our pastor to close us in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.